Jodcast, preparing for the next conference with Emma Alexander, George Bendo, Hongying Chen, Samuel Lesky, Haritina Mogoshanu, Ian Morrison, Fiona Porter, and Rory Zhu. The Jodcast, July 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio is Hong Ying. Hi. And Rory. Hello. So, Rory hasn't ever joined us before. Hopefully, uh, Rory can tell us a little bit about what she's doing here at Manchester. So, I'm mainly doing the neutrino cosmology. And so, the neutrinos have some effects in the expansion history of the universe. So, that's what I'm doing. So what aspect of neutrinos and cosmology specifically are you looking at? Because they have some effects on the expansion history of the universe, so I'm trying to figure out what's their effects on the CMB power spectrum and the constraints on neutrinos. So, in the show this time, Emma Alexander interviews Jess Wade about public engagement with science, and Ian Morrison... Haritina Mogoshanu and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the July night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Fiona Porter with this month's news. This month in the news, planets in progress, mystery molecules, and oceans under ice. First up, the rear sight of a pair of planets in development has been spotted by the Very Large Telescope. The two planets are in orbit around a star called PDS-70, which is about 370 light-years away from us, and are named PDS-70b, which orbits its parent at about the same distance Uranus orbits our star, and PDS-70c, which orbits at about the distance Neptune does. Both of these planets are fairly large, weighing in at multiple times the mass of Jupiter. What's especially interesting about this system is that it's very young. So young that the star is still surrounded by a cloud of protoplanetary dust. This is a disk of rocky and gaseous material that surrounds its host star, where material can gradually clump together over time to form a larger structure until its own gravitational pull has drawn in all the matter around it, and it becomes a planet. Planets can be identified by looking for gaps in a protoplanetary disk, but on this occasion, both the young planets and the missing material they've collected are visible. This is a rewarding observation for two reasons. First, it provides good evidence that our theories about how planets form around stars are correct. Previously, young planets and gaps in the protoplanetary disk had been observed separately, but it's not very common to see both at once. As well as this, because this system is still very young, it gives us something to watch in the future to further our understanding about how planetary systems develop. Next, to a rather smaller kind of observation, with charged buckyballs being observed in the interstellar medium for the first time. Buckminster fullerene is a type of molecule where 60 carbon atoms are bound together in a football-like sphere, that's a soccer ball for anyone listening in North America, hence their shorter name of buckyballs. They can be found here on Earth rarely within rocks, but are more commonly spotted in soot or deliberately created in labs. Buckyballs have been spotted in space before, orbiting other stars within a cloud of particles like those that make up protoplanetary disks. However, the interstellar medium, the space between stars which has very limited amounts of matter present, was previously thought to be too hostile an environment for complex molecules like Buckminster fullerene to survive. 
Spectroscopic observations using the Hubble Space Telescope have recently proven otherwise, though, with the signature wavelengths of ionised buckyballs identified within our galaxy. This significantly increases the size of the largest known molecules in the interstellar medium from 12 atoms up to 60, and suggests that other mystery molecules out there might also be made of large numbers of carbon atoms. Exciting news for astrochemists. Finally, a molecule has been found on Europa that I won't need to explain. Salt. Europa, Jupiter's icy Galilean moon, is known to have a vast ocean under its frozen surface, and it seems that it might be more like Earth's oceans than expected. Sodium chloride, commonly known as table salt, has been detected on Europa's surface in chaos regions, which are areas where the surface has been disrupted relatively recently, suggesting they must have come from the ocean beneath. Meanwhile, NASA has just confirmed funding for the Dragonfly mission, which will explore Saturn's moon Titan, another moon with an ocean hidden under an icy surface. Dragonfly will use a small nuclear-powered drone to explore Titan's landscape and investigate one of its unique features, its atmosphere. Unlike other moons, Titan's atmosphere is even denser than Earth's. Dragonfly is hoped to launch in 2026 and land on Titan in 2034. These two moons are of particular interest as they are some of the best candidates for life within our solar system beyond the Earth. Although if there is any, we're more likely to see microbes than anything else. Nonetheless, both are giving us new insight to the structure of some of the largest moons in our solar system. Thanks for that, Fiona. Now, Emma Alexander interviews Jay Sweet about her work within public engagement with science. So I'm here with Dr Jess Wade, who is a research associate in physics at Imperial College London. In addition to her research into light-emitting diodes, she works in public engagement in the sciences, including writing hundreds of Wikipedia articles highlighting women and other groups underrepresented in science. Amongst other accolades and awards, she was named as one of nature's 10 people who mattered in science in 2018. Unusually for the Jodcast, she's not an astronomer, uh, but nevertheless, a very warm welcome to you. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your research? So obviously, unusually for the Jodcast, this is non-astronomy, um, but interesting nonetheless. Sure. Okay. Well, I work with um, new materials for light emitting diodes, as you said in the introduction, but these are kind of new semiconductors. They're, they're carbon-based semiconductors instead of the conventional semiconductors, the things like silicon and gallium arsenide. These are based on carbon, so we call them organic semiconductors. And they can be polymers, so long chains of carbon atoms, if your listeners remember their, their A-level chemistry, or, or they can be small molecules, so small groups of these carbon atoms connected together. What's really fascinating about these materials is that we can use their chemistry, so those arrangements of carbon atoms, the elements that are in there, different structures that we can create to control their electronic properties. So we can create things like light emitting diodes that emit a particular color of light or solar panels that absorb a particular part of the spectrum. And then we can do, use this, this kind of functionality to make a whole new generation of electronic devices because the processing requirements for organic materials are much less intensive than for inorganic materials. So we can run them at lower temperatures, we can dissolve them in kind of common organic solvents, and we can even print them onto flexible surfaces. So it's this idea that we can take materials that were once considered to be insulators but have really nice processing properties, we can arrange them and give them really kind of cool chemistry to make sure that they're semiconductors and then we can 
dissolve them and print them. So we have the kind of electronic functionality of, of, of a semiconductor, but the materials and processing properties of, of a plastic. And I guess my specific part of it is, is to try and make light emitting diodes that emit circularly polarized light. And, and this, is, this is ultimately for display technologies to try and increase the efficiency and lifetime of displays. But we're using a range of, of small molecules that are chiral. So twisted small molecules. Actually, I don't know if that's something you ever come across in astronomy. You do have cyclically polarized light, right? Yes, yeah. Although not too often. Usually it's, it's linearly polarized light we'll be looking out for. But there are some things that do have circular polarization. So there, uh, astronomy link there. Sometimes you read about it and then actually what people are proposing it for isn't only for um, efficient television displays, but also in security and communications, because you can send information that's circularly polarized. And obviously the person receiving it will only be able to decode it if they know that it's left or right handed because our eyes can't differentiate that. But then also you can use it in biology. So you can use circularly polarized light in a really neat way to try and sense biological molecules because lots of, of biomaterials are, are chiral in some way. You know, DNA is, is a great example of one, but lots of materials are twisted in the human body. So, so what started is this kind of just looking at cool materials, thinking about the chemistry and processing that we have to do to make these LEDs emit sexually polarized light has now become this kind of really fascinating endeavor, which is to try and find really neat and cool applications where we can, where we can apply this. And actually, there's so much kind of very, very fascinating physics involved. So if you have a material that preferentially emits left or right handed light, there seems to be some evidence now that they also transfer up or down electrons. So something that went from being in a very kind of physics chemistry domain, kind of material science domain has gone towards a very hard physics, spintronics, quantum com computation kind of world. And it, it's it's amazing. Wow, that, that does sound absolutely incredible. But moving on to the other stuff that you do I mean I mean given what you've just described there I'm surprised that you've, you've got the time to be doing all of this other stuff but amongst all the research that you do um, you are also really big in the world of science engagement so why why is it important and what first got you into it? I obviously think science engagement broadly to the general public is really important because ultimately the people listening to this podcast are the people who pay taxes and those people who pay taxes are people who fund our salaries so I pretty much think that, that engaging the public with the science that we're doing and certainly involving them in sharing how exciting our results are or discussing with them designs of experiments or things like that as much as possible is it's not really something that is kind of optional. I think it should be completely mandatory, right? They're, they're integral mm. to the whole process because ultimately they're funding it. And coming from that, I think that the public serve as someone who has a really important voice in the direction that we go as scientists. What what do we invest in as a country? Which which conditions should be in, we be investigating? Which things should the UK really champion and take forward? You know, should we build a huge new particle collider? Should we do something different? And I think that for an incredibly long time, science has been this kind of elitist group of academics and, and physicists are particularly good at this who think they're incredibly intelligent much more so than than the average person and therefore don't need to interact with them and I think now you see it in in kind of our generation of scientists of scientists saying hey actually you know I want the public there I want to demonstrate what I'm doing and I want to talk about it on a public stage so for one side of of, of the engagement stuff that I do it's always been very much focused on actually we wouldn't be allowed to do what we do at all if it wasn't for the public and I love my job so much. I'd love them to to realize how lucky we are and how much great, you know, how much great research we're doing and how integral they are in that process. 
But the other side of it for me has always been that, and I'm sure it's been discussed on the Jodcast before, but we have, um, especially in physics, again, we have a pretty chronic lack of diversity. And, mm. you know, the majority, if, if people at home are thinking of physicists, they think of kind of old white men. And, and unfortunately, that's still the case in lots of physics departments around the country. And I really, really, as many and as you, I hope, <laughs> want that to change. Because physics is such an incredible subject to study and also research. And I think physicists contribute so much to wider society alongside whatever they're doing. And really, ultimately, I think we need more physicists in, in Parliament because there are so many shocking decisions that get made that I think wouldn't happen if physicists are in charge. So a big part of, of my life alongside my research has always been trying to um, engage underrepresented groups, whether that's women or people of colour or other kind of protected characteristics to get them to realise just how incredible physics is. And, and, you know, we have in the UK about 20% of the A-level population are girls. So we only have about 20% of the undergraduate physics population are girls. And obviously that decreases as you move through an academic career because so many men and women leave physics. By the end, you only end up with about 11% of the physics professors in the country being women. And I think I think that has a really, really big impact on, on the science that we do and the way that we analyze and interpret data and the way that the kind of cult, culture and community of academic departments. I think you, sh you can't expect, you know, in so many ways, every incredible, successful, great research project I've been on has benefited so much from having different people around the table coming together to think creatively and differently about a problem that we're all trying to solve. And we can't have that if we have academic departments where only 11% of the professors are women and even fewer are ethnic minorities or black. I just don't think, I think diversity is crucial for good research. And at the moment, we don't have that. So, so a big part of my kind of advocacy and campaigning has always been to try and engage particularly girls in in physics a level to try and get them to choose it for a level and then mm. when they've chosen it come to university and I guess I started doing that during my PhD I had a really really great kind of mentor or advisor for my during my PhD who was a postgrad student just a few years above me and then he left he went to get a job at MPL and I remember being like oh my god what am I going to do I'm on my own and then and then I was like looking around and then suddenly I realized that I was not only on my own I was very much you know in an office full of 20 young men and it was only me and so it became more important to me then and then just increasingly so you know what started as something that I thought I just think it's really important to get more girls involved has now become something where I think actually we need a kind of cultural reform within academia so that when those girls come because they will come because they're super able at physics and, and also physics is great. So if we show them that a bit, they'll be like, oh, yeah, of course it is great. Then then when they arrive, I think academia has to be ready to welcome them. And I think that's the next kind of big challenge is how do we transform academic institutions so that they're places where every single person can succeed as, as much as the other people? You know, we don't have it. We shouldn't have attainment gaps. And then and then when they graduate, everyone knows that there'd be incredibly welcome with open arms into scientific research because I don't think that we have that at the moment so I guess oh, the yeah. past kind of couple of years have been more focused on how we do that you know how we build these communities and what we need to do to better celebrate the underrepresented groups in them yeah no that that was exactly what I was I was about to ask you there in terms of you know what what issues there are with representation in science and so you, you mentioned we've, we're trying to set about now kind of tackling these issues and what can people do to help this out you know you mentioned the the low levels of girls going into physics and retention of women in physics as well 
But from the standpoint of people in academic communities or even people, for example, Jodcast listeners who are science enthusiasts, what kind of things can we be doing to um, encourage this, uh, encourage this better environment? Oh, gosh, this is a very big question. I think that um, the stuff with girls is really interesting and it's obviously a completely separate question to how we change the community. I think realistically, as early career researchers and, and scientists, we're encouraged all the time to go out and kind of do some quote unquote outreach and go into schools and talk about how amazing our job is and expect that that will result in, you know, one hour that you give at lunchtime on a Thursday will result in a kind of culture shift within that classroom and people will suddenly start choosing A-level physics. And I think that's super naive. We actually need to do, as, as scientists who have huge pressures on our time, is think strategically about, about ways we do outreach and engagement with schools. And we really need to make it a long-term commitment, probably to fewer students if it's long-term, where we work much more with teachers and parents who are ultimately there all the time. Because something I, I feel like I spent so much of my PhD going around to all of these schools being like, hey, this is great, physics is great. And you leave it and you feel like, oh, that was great because you always get such a rush, right? When you do any kind of public engagement and everyone's yeah. having a great time and the kids are having a great time. But then ultimately the numbers that you'll change are really minimal. You know, even if you're fantastic, the people who look up to you in that classroom and kind of resonate and feel connected, it's it's small. So so we can't do anything from that kind of small level. You can have kind of local impact, but it won't go absolutely massive. And I think that we actually need as a as a society to celebrate and look after teachers a lot more you know they have such an important role in training that scientists whether it's a physicist or a mathematician or a chemist of the future and and you know the majority of them don't even have an a-level in physics they they feel not confident to teach physics they probably didn't enjoy physics at school so actually what we really need to do is get more physicists teaching physics but better pay and better support the teachers there and then really work with parents a lot more and kind of breaking down this fear that they have of subjects like physics and maths you know a big challenge is that lots of kids go home to their parents and and their mums or dads say oh yeah I always hated physics at school I've always hated maths and that kind of feeds into the way that the young people perceive that subject and so mm. I think we need we've got a lot a lot of work to do there so I think instead of kind of buying into these big fancy outreach campaigns or kind of engagement videos or the you know all of these things that you see like you know I don't know science barbie whatever <laughs> I think we, we actually need as a society to stop spending so much money on things that have no evidence and start collecting evidence on what engagement does and doesn't work because I think we haven't been doing that and actually the the people who do an amazing job at the Institute of Physics and the Institute of Physics have a whole education program called Improving Gender Balance and that's really looked at how we can challenge gender stereotypes in schools and and kind of they've done it as a scientific experiment so they've had a few different tracks looking at different groups that they work with and ultimately the one that kind of worked the best and the one that's had the most impact is working with senior leadership in a school so working with the whole school but getting senior leadership to commit to challenging stereotypes in every subject so you have teachers in art involved with this you have people in the playground involved with this you don't just focus on science departments and physics classrooms because because that's kind of it's too siloed actually these stereotypes are channeled right across the school curriculum and so from that perspective I think that's what we need to do you know we need teachers and parents engaged with this battle for equality and we, we really ultimately need to train them as physicists but also train them in the kind of challenges that I think young girls face to their confidence which are completely unnecessary because they're all absolutely brilliant and capable but we need to get rid of that. That's it. It's a silly block in, in achieving diversity at that level. 
to do more to kind of build communities he's where everyone feels welcome when they arrive and everyone feels like they can contribute to the university that they're in and particularly on the early career side I think there's a huge amount of of fear of of standing out or fear of you know it's hard when you arrive in a university department and you're the only woman in a group of all men you know where do you go when you're feeling imposter syndrome where do you go when you're feeling like I don't deserve to be here. Everyone else is super bright, which you feel a lot in a physics department, right? So you think everyone around mm-hmm. is a complete genius. Why did they let you in? Someone's going to find out one day that I'm not as much of a genius <laughs> as all of them. And I think we, we, you hold that, you hold that a lot. If you're, if you're the only person around you who looks like you, you know, whether you're a woman or a person of color, it's difficult to voice those concerns if you're in a group of, of entirely white as far as you can tell, highly achieving men. So I think we need to better build these communities where people feel that they're listened to and, and will actually, you know, be heard and that their their concerns are not completely trivial and that but they're unfounded. You know, we need to get rid of that feeling of of imposter syndrome. And I guess that comes through discussion. But then also we need, and this is the kind of tricky one, we need big strategic changes within universities. You know, at the moment, there's a lot of things like sexual harassment and bullying that a lot of universities are just coming out and saying, you know, we have a zero tolerance policy on sexual harassment. But what does that really mean? Is anything happening to these sexual harassers? And what happens to the victims of sexual harassment? How are they being supported? And if you come forward to call someone out for being an academic bully, what happens to the research group of that academic bully? So I think there's a huge amount of kind of structural issues within universities that they haven't quite sorted out yet, because for centuries, they've been operating on this kind of, we are built for men to work in, and they'll protect the men who work in them. I guess there needs to be a cultural change within universities to say, actually, the people who are coming to university now are from much different backgrounds than before. They're not going to put up with the bad behavior that we've had before. And we need to kind of structurally change the universities to better support those people because you just see it right there's so much data now that says women start women come in but then they leave and yeah black and minority ethnic students start studying physics but then they score worse in their final year exams and it should be a kind of national embarrassment and I'm surprised it's not yeah it's something that I've noticed I I think has only been started to be talked about within the past few years as well it's it's almost as if it's all it's been more hush hush for for years and years and now it's only that that people are starting to talk about it a bit more yeah I completely agree with you it's kind of like people have been frightened to to say these words before you know they've had the data on it for ages I don't you know there's a an attainment gap for women physics undergraduate students they don't get as many first class degrees as boys there's an attainment gap for students from different socioeconomic backgrounds and you know that administrators within universities will have had that for years and years, but just mm. sitting on it until someone gave them the permission and the voice. And then the next big thing is, what do we need to do as a university to be able to fix this? Because, you know, it's illegal. Uh, if students are coming to you with exactly the same academic background, they can't as an entire gender or as an entire ethnicity be performing worse. It's not, you know, it's something in the way that we're teaching. It's something in the way that we're assessing. It's something in these departments and communities that we run so really kind of I guess all my energy and engagement now is trying to think you know what do we better need to do to support students from underrepresented groups whether that's people who are coming from a completely different part of the country or even a different country how do you make sure that they are supported both in their kind of academic you know everything that's going on academically but also in that their mental health is okay and also that they're Social life is okay. All of that, I think, adds into that undergraduate experience and ultimately feeds into the feeling that you have within a university. You know, 
universities are, are research and they're teaching and I think we've got a long way of, about forgetting the teaching is important and and mm. that means that when you come to choosing if you'll do a postgraduate degree or if you've got a degree in physics and you're trying to decide whether you work in an investment bank the people who have always done these jobs the kind of white middle class men will stay in and do the PhDs because because that's always been easy right mm. and other people who've entered had this pretty rubbish experience, always felt like an outsider, never have had interactions with anyone beyond the, the teaching classrooms that they're in, is not going to choose to do a PhD. So we lose so many brilliant people. How many mm. discoveries have we not made? Because we've had people who think exactly the same sitting around tables analyzing data. And, and so that's become a big, a big exactly. kind of mine. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard some, some isolated comments before about or why why do why do we always have to bring in kind of issues like this into science and can you not separate the science from the people doing science but actually you, you make a very good point there of you know if if someone is doing science but they're also not a great human being and that's impacting on uh, the work of other scientists that that is having a direct impact on on the science that's happening again if and if there are people from a whole range of backgrounds who haven't gotten into science or they've not been or they've not stayed in science again that that's having a direct impact on on the science results I guess yeah so if you see me on Twitter a huge book that was very impactful for me was inferior by Angela Saini which is really looking at the kind of dodgy stereotypes that have held women back from being successful in society and, and the bad science behind them and and she started writing that book because she was going to write something about the menopause for the Guardian and then started looking into it and realized just how little science there had been done on women's health because the majority of scientific researchers are men and they don't go that near women's health. And, and you've seen it now in the Caroline Criado Perez book, Invisible Women, about the huge lack of data we have on anything to do with women, whether it's, you know, our shape and body size for the design of seatbelts or the inclusion of women in medical trials, I think actually you're seeing and it's because people are talking now and probably driven by having a voice through social media but actually there are so many areas where a lack of women in that initial design testing stage has actually resulted in some incredibly biased devices and innovation and and I guess we're only it's only being accelerated now with artificial intelligence. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was going to say there was the, the recent story of the the International Space Station and um, two female astronauts up on the, the space station. And I believe the story has been kind of misreported in some areas. They do they do have two medium spacesuits on the space station, but only one of them had been prepped for um, they, they, there was going to be a. a, a a double female spacewalk the first in history but they had to scrap it because um one of them decided that she she didn't want to use the the large spacesuit and they they had a kind of a shortage of the medium spacesuits they don't even have small spacesuits so if you're a if you're a petite woman then good luck being an astronaut i guess i think but that's just it, i mean that manifests in so much of scientific life right mm. what surprises me there isn't that they obviously did have two mediums or they could have support you know they would have prepped it but it's mm -hmm. that they didn't prepare that far in advance. How can it just be a kind of on the day? Oh, yeah, which one are you going to wear? I, it amazes me that the International Space Station can get that so wrong. But but in so much of science, you know, after that, that story came out, so many women engineers and, and kind of physical chemists were coming forward and saying, actually, you know, the lab coats we wear, the gloves I have to wear in the lab, the boots that you have to wear when you're on construction sites, none of them are designed to fit women. They're all designed to fit men. And, mm -hmm. and you kind of... I was speaking to my friend, actually, the, the friend who works at NPL now, and he said, you know, if you came up with a really resilient construction site boot that was made for a woman's foot, you'd make a killing because no one is doing it. It's just amazing. 
Well, you heard it here first, Jodcaster. If any of you are in the boots trade, you know your next oh, come up idea. For Jess personally, could you make a girl-shaped clean room gown? Because we have to wear these clean room gowns, which are just kind of extra large blue. Little, you look like a little snake, a little outfit that covers your whole body. But they're huge. And, and it's just incredible to think that if you're a small woman, you wouldn't be able to fit in. Mm. It's a bit out of the two of our hands to be making these equipment that we need to do science. Um, but one of the things that you have been doing uh, in an attempt to help this representation issue in science is write an awful lot of Wikipedia articles. It, it's literally in the hundreds now, isn't it, I think, yeah. that you've written. How, how many Wikipedia articles have you written? I can check right now. It is 563. That is an absolutely incredible. Do, do you want to go into a little bit about what's, what got you into that and, and what exactly you aim to do with all this Wikipedia article creation? Sure. I think, obviously, as I said before, um, nah, I think that young people are incredibly important in driving this change in equality and their opinions and perceptions of physics inform whether they'll choose to study it later on. And I think increasingly young people spend their time online and, and don't use textbooks and don't really read factual books, but they spend their time on the internet. And I think a place that a lot of them go to for information in lessons is Wikipedia. So that's kind of the beginning of why I think Wikipedia is super important. And I know that scientists have a big problem with Wikipedia because actually lots of the science pages on there are lacking in quality and not really up to date. But it's ultimately our responsibility to change that. You know, it is the world's biggest encyclopedia contributed to internationally by volunteers giving free information and, and we can make it as good as, as good as physically possible. That was a great study a couple of years ago where a chemistry professor got a whole undergraduate class to update the pages on Wikipedia about particular areas of chemistry and they con controlled that quite tightly. You know, they, they improved these pages significantly on different areas that were related to this professor's research. And then they checked for the following few years how these pages were used in academic publications. And they found that for one in 300 words in chemistry papers, they'd come from those Wikipedia pages. So that was the kind of prevalence of the concepts that were in this Wikipedia drive that this chemistry professor did, how often that's used in science afterwards. So it's not just used in classrooms, it's also used in the great, great wide world and in academic science, you know. If you're starting a new collaboration or if you want to know a new technique, it's probably the first place that you go to for information, which I think is is pretty powerful thing. But anyway, I started editing Wikipedia because I read Angela Sainey's book, Inferior, which kind of goes through and talks about all of these stereotypes that have held women back from, from contributing to society and how, you know, for very much until the last century, men have looked around them at a super biased world and seen that bias and that inequality as, as being due to biology rather than being due to kind of structural problems within society that have stopped women from succeeding. And this book was incredibly powerful to me, so much so that I took it all over the world. I took it to meet every academic I met. I took it to conferences. I, you know, when I had work experience students, I gave it to them. And I really saw how young people engaged with this book. And it really gave all of us a voice, you know, so many women scientists all over, it, all over the world, women and men scientists, I should say. Anyway, at the same time, I met this great um, Wikimedian called Dr. Alice White, who works at the Welcome Collection. And her job is to get archived content from the Welcome onto Wikipedia very much in the kind of way that Wikipedia is used in classrooms and in science labs and in houses and whatever, the welcome have recognized that if they want their content to be reached by an in incredibly large audience, to be accessed by a very large audience, then they should put it on Wikipedia. And, and so Alice's job is to kind of do digital editing, but also uploading to Wikipedia. And she taught me about how to edit. 
and also about the kind of huge, huge bias on the website, because because the majority of editors are men, about 80 to 90 percent of the editors on Wikipedia are men, largely white men in America. And so the content about kind of battleships and weird football teams and obscure towns (laughs) in the north of England is great. But only 17 and a half percent of the biographies are about women. And it's even, you know, people of color, women of color, people with disabilities, fare even worse. And I guess at the bottom of all of that is women scientists. You really don't have many biographies about women scientists at all. And so every time after Alice told me that and Anna read Inferior and you kind of you kind of think, you know, so much of history has been written by men about men for other men. And now we have a real option with Wikipedia to be able to change that. You know, we can contribute to this massive amount of free knowledge and we can do that in a way that better celebrates the people from underrepresented groups that we know are doing science now. So whilst there may not be many women professors of physics, we should be able to celebrate and champion them. We should be able to talk about the research we do. I guess from an engagement perspective, it's always had this kind of double and incredibly cool edge to me. It's like science communication, but in a stealthy way. So someone Mm. will go onto the page about a particular supernova or a particular kind of solar panel. And then through clicking the links on Wikipedia, we'll get to this page about this incredible woman scientist. So you don't go in and be like, oh, hi, this is a woman physicist. She's so great because she's a woman. You go in and you're like, this is the really cool science. You're fascinated by supernovas. Here's some more fun facts. Oh, did you know who discovered it? And I, I find that much more compelling, you know, so... I think you kind of lead by lead by interest and then they find out that actually there are a whole bunch of diverse scientists who were there all along doing this. The other thing that you do with Wikipedia more than more than any other platform is have a huge, huge reach. So I think it's accessed about just over 32 million times a day. Wow. The fifth most popular website in the world. So it's it's kind of, you know, if you want people to read this stuff, you put it on Wikipedia. And and yeah, it's 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 amazing. And also, I guess writing these biographies, particularly about women and people of colour, has, has just been so inspiring for me. It's, it's, um, I feel like in one way, everyone's like, oh, that's such a great thing to do. But actually, it's amazing for me to read about these chemists and physicists and computer scientists who were in different parts of the world at completely different stages throughout history, who were really fighting just for their right to research or just for their right to own you know, own their own lab, run their own lab and and finding more out about them. And often the research is just so cool afterwards for days. I'm just thinking like that is just how amazing that someone got into that. Or yesterday I got to speak to one of the people whose Wikipedia page I'd made on the phone. And she oh, is, wow. a, um, a, yeah, so cool. She's a nuclear chemist in Tennessee. And, and I was just sitting there at Imperial on the phone to this like incredible woman who I'm so inspired by. And I was thinking, what a neat, it, what an incredible thing to be able to do. You know, there was no way I could have done that without Wikipedia. So I do think that um, it's been an amazing journey of learning about these people, making the internet slightly better, but also kind of talking more structurally about bias and how we end that. And also submitting these people for prizes. That's something I've got really into. So oh, yes. So you don't only, if they're alive, obviously, but but when you write a biography about someone, you learn so much about all of the incredible things that they've done. And then, and then you know the... Institute of Physics Awards come up, Royal Astronomical Society, whatever, and you're in a really good place to nominate them for prizes. And there's been a lot of of research into the under nominations of women and people of colour. And actually, and it's probably the same with the RAS, but but people from learned societies are calling out for people from underrepresented groups to be nominated. And actually, we need to do better at nominating them. Yeah, no, I agree. 
for all of your Wikipedia articles that that you that you've written, or just any of the research that you've you've come across, have there been any um, stories or research areas that you found particularly interesting? Um, particularly interesting if if they're related to astronomy, of course. Yes. So one of my favourite ones that I made very um, in February last year is a woman called Gladys West. And she mm. is an African-American mathematician who was born in the 1930s. So she's kind of approaching 90. And when I made the page, it was kind of hard to find information about her. She was born in Virginia. I knew kind of where she went to school. I knew where she went to church now. And I had these kind of community news sites to pull together this information. And, and she studied maths at a time when few women were studying maths at university and few African-American women were studying maths at university. And, and she went on to work for the US government and was really important in the design of GPS. So she was doing all the early kind of maths behind the, the initial launch of the GPS satellites. The reports that I could find that, that documented that her involvement with this were all kind of redacted. Like you feel like a detective when you're doing it, you have all of these secret information. Anyway, so I made this page that was very light and then, and then I tweeted it and shared it. And since then, it's, she's been nominated twice for BBC 100 Women, which is where they nominate, they celebrate and recognize 100 women working worldwide. And they have these kind of huge campaigns. And, you know, the BBC gets so much coverage. So my page viewer stats for Gladys West go from like hundreds a day to thousands a day, which is just incredible. And she's also entered the US Air Force Hall of Fame. And in 2019, she's just finished her PhD that she did by distance learning. So she's such a cool, I felt like it was hidden figures. Like you just find out about these cool, fantastic women and then and then the, the, the celebration keeps on going, you know, even into your 80s. That is absolutely incredible. Yeah. I'm in awe of that. That's amazing. No, I want to meet her. My aim for this year is to meet her. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. And you've inspired me now. I think I might have to go and do some Wikipedia in myself some. now. Do some. We can all sit around and complain about lack of diversity or we can do something to change. I've also cool. made Teresa Anderson's page who is um, director of the Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre. Good stuff. Thank you on her behalf. <laughs> well, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, it's been absolutely great to talk to you and you've given us a really great perspective on, on uh, a lot of the things that are go going on behind the science. So the scientists behind the science. So that's, that's a really interesting insight into things. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And keep wikipedia and keep doing all the good stuff that you do. Will do. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So Hong Ying is here recording with us this week, even though Hong Ying wasn't supposed to be here recording with us this week. And I thought this was kind of an interesting story to share with everybody else. So, Hong Yang, if you could tell us what happened. Yes, of course. So, I was supposed to be in U.S. today. But now, I'm here presenting because I failed to get the visa to the U.S. Because I was required to submit my CV to support my application. And I did that, but my documents are still under review. So which conference were you going to? So I was going to the Next Generation VLA conference. So I knew this conference like two months ago, and I paid for the visa application fee, and the earliest date I can make was 10th of June. So I didn't have enough time to get the visa. But if I was agreed right away, then I can still catch it. But 
I was required to submit the complimentary document, so I missed it. This certainly seems to be happening with a lot of people who are trying to do research in various countries. Because various countries, including the UK, have become a little bit more strict in terms of their immigration rules and their visa rules. Sometimes people are missing out on conferences. So I organized a conference here in Manchester two years ago, and one of the speakers who was another Chinese national living in Switzerland, couldn't make it to the meeting because even though he submitted the application, the UK Home Office, which is in charge of immigration, didn't return his application results in time. And so he wrote me on the second to last day saying, I'm going to miss the meeting. I can't get my application back. Actually, I'm not the only one I knew who was rejected in the visa application for the U.S. One of my friends was also failed in the visa application. He was attending a summer campus in U.S., but he was rejected twice, right away, like he was even worse than my situation. So I still have the chance to get my visa, which is too late. Well, you don't have a chance to get a visa for this conference, but... Yes, but maybe I can find another conference in the future to take advantage of this visa. Oh, okay. So you think you may still get the visa from the application you put in? Yes, maybe after one month. So, which reminds me, my aunt, she applied for the USA visa several years ago. And when she went to Beijing to do the interview, she just got rejected because during the interview, they think the, the way she dressed like a homeless people. But she's dressed in being an artist. But Hong Yang doesn't dress like a homeless person. Well, on the other hand, she might still get her visa, so... Yeah, but I was not that confident during the interview because I was a bit nervous and I was asked for my CV and I said, no, I I don't have my CV, so, so I was a bit freaked out. That may also be the reason why I was not accepted right away. Wow, they're very strict. Yeah, that that was stressful. Yeah, that's true. So if you are traveling to the U.S. and you need the interview in the visa application, always remember to bring your CV to support yourself. And I think you need to dress correctly. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about something which hopefully is not quite as political, even though it involves some countries which have been in the news quite a bit because of strained political relations with other countries. So I recently learned about a new project for a new space observatory called the Millimetron Space Observatory. And this is being built by the Russian Federal Space Program. So it's a space telescope being built by Russia. And quite honestly, I don't know of many space telescopes that have been built by Russia although Russia has done a lot of other things in space. So the telescope is a 10-meter telescope, which is really large for space, and the telescope will be operating at wavelengths from 20 microns, which is in the mid-infrared, to 17 millimeters, which is a wavelength where ground-based telescopes like OMA operate. This is a really, really broad wavelength range for any telescope to operate at. 
So at infrared wavelengths, the telescope will have better sensitivities and will be able to produce images with much finer angular resolutions than any older infrared telescope. So it will be able to create much sharper images of infrared emission from interstellar dust, as well as various ionized elements such as C+, or ionized carbon. Among other things, the telescope could be used to image individual star-forming regions and other galaxies. It could actually image gravitational lenses in the infrared instead of just producing blurry infrared dots, which later get imaged by some other telescope. Or it could, and this is actually one which sounded really impressive to me, it could directly image individual planets around other stars. Sorry, what is the resolution of this telescope? Because it can take images of the planets, so the resolution might be very good. So at 250 microns, the resolution is going to be about 6 arc seconds. So just for reference for people who don't know angular scales off the top of their head, there are 360 degrees in the circle, you see 180 degrees in the sky. Each degree can be broken down into 60 arc minutes, and then each arc minute can be broken down to 60 arc seconds. The moon is about 30 arc minutes across, or half a degree. At 20 microns, it's going to be doing somewhere around 0.5 arc seconds angular resolution. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, with detecting exoplanets is that they don't produce a lot of emission in optical light because they're primarily reflecting light from the star that they're orbiting. But they will produce an awful lot of infrared emission because they will be absorbing a lot of that starlight and re-emitting it as infrared light. So it will actually be quite a bit easier to detect some of these planets in the infrared especially if you have observations that are this sharp. This is comparable to the angular resolution that's been used to image some of the debris disks around nearby stars like Fomalhaut. These are disks where we can see the dust emission in millimeter radiation, but we haven't quite observed anything with that sharp a resolution in the infrared. Now, the other thing that this telescope will be able to do that is really impressive is at millimeter wavelengths, it will be able to act as a part of a much larger interferometer, which includes other telescopes on Earth, such as ALMA. So it will be able to act like the Event Horizon Telescope, which combined lots and lots of millimeter observatories on Earth into one interferometer, but now it will function like an additional antenna in space, which means that this array will be able to see even smaller details than the Event Horizon Telescope did. So the Event Horizon Telescope was very impressive for being able to image the shadow produced by the supermassive black hole in M87. This telescope will be able to do that for a dozen more active galactic nuclei in other galaxies. Thanks for that, George. And now someone who's much closer than Millimetro. Here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for July 2019. Well, at least towards the end of July, the nights are getting slightly longer. 
After sunset, the brightest star you'll see towards the southwest is Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. And up towards the northwest is the constellation of Ertha Major with the bright stars forming the plough. Moving towards the south from Bootes, one passes a fairly faint constellation, Hercules, which does, however, contain a very lovely object, M13, a globular cluster. And then one reaches the most beautiful part of the sky, the constellations of Lyra, Cygnus and Aquila. The three stars, Altair in Aquila, Vega in Lyra and Deneb in Cygnus, form what is called the Summer Triangle. It's a very beautiful part of the sky. Down to the left, tiny little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin. Rising over in the east and getting higher as the night progresses is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which we actually see upside down. So as the month moves on, that lovely region of the sky around Cygnus becomes more and more prominent. Well, what about the planets? Well, it's not a fantastic month, to be honest. Let's start with Jupiter. It shines initially at magnitude minus 2.6, but as it's now past opposition, it falls a little to 2.4 minus. It's visible in the south as darkness falls, and the angular size again is dropping slightly from 45.5 to 43 arc seconds. It's in the southern part of Ophiuchus, and it's currently moving westwards in retrograde motion, so moving towards Antares in Scorpius. And at the end of the month, it will lie about seven degrees up and to its left. A highlight on the night sky page, just search night sky jodrell, gives the times, when it's dark of course, when the great red spot faces the Earth. So as it's now very close to the southernmost part of the ecliptic, it will only have an elevation of about 14 degrees when due south. So atmospheric dispersion will take its toll and a device called an atmospheric dispersion corrector would greatly help to improve our views of the giant planet. Well, what about Saturn? It comes into opposition on July the 9th, shining at magnitude plus 0.1 throughout the month. So it's crossing the meridian about 1am BST. The disk is about 18 arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still nicely tilted from the line of sight, spanning some 42 arc seconds across. Sadly, now in Sagittarius and lying on the southern side of the Milky Way, it's at the lowest point of the ecliptic, and again, like Jupiter, will only reach an elevation of around 14 degrees. Mercury might just be seen low in the west-northwest after sunset in the first few days of the month, with a magnitude of plus 1.1 and an angular size of 9.4 arc seconds. To spot it, one will need a very low horizon and binoculars could well be needed to reduce the sun's background glare. But please, do not use them until after the sun has set. Now Mars remains at magnitude plus 1.8 all month, and is still just visible low in the west-northwest after sunset. It's crossing Cancer as the month progresses, and passes into Leo on the 29th of July. It sets some one hour after the sun at the start of July, with an elevation at sunset of about 9 degrees, but less than half an hour by month's end, when it would be very difficult to spot. The angular size falls from 3.7 to 3.5 arc seconds, so one will not be able to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. Again, binoculars could well be needed to spot it, 
character and so reduce the sun's background glare, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Now, Venus with a magnitude of minus 3.9 rises less than one hour before the sun at the start of the month with an angular size of 9.7 arc seconds, but will be lost from our view around the 18th. Its elevation is only 4 degrees at sunrise, so a very low horizon just north of east is required, and again, binoculars may well be needed to spot it through the sun's glare, but this time, of course, do not please use them until after the sun has risen. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, in early July, it's still a very good time to spot noctilucent clouds. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere, with heights of about 50 miles. Normally, they're too faint to be seen, but they become visible when illuminated from sunlight from below the northern horizon, while the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So, on a clear night, as light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look towards the north, and you might just spot them. There are two nice objects in the sky after dark. One is the globular cluster in Hercules. This is basically on the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation of Hercules. It's M13, the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky. And if you go across to the bright star Vega in Lyra, just over to its left is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, each of the two stars is revealed to be itself a double star, hence the name. On July the 1st, before dawn, a chance to spot Venus and a thin, waning crescent moon. You need a very low horizon looking towards the northeast, but if it's clear, you might just be able to spot them. On July the 13th, in the late evening, Jupiter is close to the moon, looking towards the south the moon then two days before full. On the 15th, around midnight, the moon has moved across and is close to Saturn, and Saturn will be seen over to the left of the moon just one day before full. And on July the 16th, after sunset, there's a partial eclipse of the moon. So looking low in the southeast after sunset, we might, hopefully if clear, be able to observe a partially eclipsed moon. The partial eclipse phase will end at around midnight BST. And finally, on July the 28th before dawn, the waning crescent moon crosses the Hyades cluster and we're seen just to its left and close to the red giant star Aldebaran. And finally, on the night sky page, I have a little bit about learning the mare on the moon's surface. Just a little chart showing you where the various mare are. Quite a nice thing to actually have a look at. Well, hopefully you'll have some good observing in July. Thanks for that, Ian, and for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Magachano and Samuel Lesky with the Night Scare Where You Are. Hi everyone, good evening from here from New Zealand. We are at Space Place at Carter Observatory, where we hold galactic conversations about what's in the night sky in July. The instructions for looking up in July are as follows. First of all, we learn what July is all about and what the sun's up to, and what's in the Milky Way. Birds of the sky, in particular this month. And what Orion and Scorpius are doing. What are the brightest stars visible at night after sunset. And finally, some favourite deep sky objects to train your binoculars and telescopes onto. 
We have a special guest tonight as well, Katie Paul from Rotorua. Katie is a very old friend of ours. We've done a lot of space programs with her and went to find the secrets of life in Rotorua in the hot pools. We're going to talk to Kathy a bit about Matariki. But to start with, what's July? July was the month when the Roman general and leader Julius Caesar was born. And after he died, the Roman Senate renamed Quintilis the fifth month of the 10-month calendar into what today is July. But of course, it was not pronounced July, but Julius. July is the second month of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, and obviously the second month of summer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's also the month where traditionally the government's financial year starts here in New Zealand. Not just the government experiences new beginnings, but also we must add that end of June or July is when we observe the Maori New Year, Matariki. This is observed according to a lunar calendar called Maramataka during the last quarter of the moon that occurs after the solstice. Katie, tell us a little bit about the Maori New Year. Yes, kia ora, Hari. The twinkling of the Matariki stars in the pre-dawn sky heralds a special celebration for young and old, for our families. So across New Zealand, we come together to remember our ancestors, share food, sing, tell stories and play music. And it's really a way in which the tongue whenua of Aotearoa view, view the world. So it's a marker of time and it's a period of transition. And as such, families come together, we might look back and mourn and honour those who have passed away. For example, in the previous year, and those loved ones we believed have transformed into stars who then shine down from the heavens and look upon us. And then the other side of it, it's a time to look forward to the new harvest, the new year, to set goals, to plan. So it's a really great tradition. It's probably our equivalent of the winter solstice. And it's a wonderful uh, way of coming together in the dark, cold winter months. We actually had a beautiful ceremony this morning. We woke up very early, 4.30. We, we went all the way to the top of Mount Victoria here in Wellington, where there were about 40 people, which was quite impressive because it was quite windy and cloudy and you could see a little bit of stars. And we talked about the year that lays ahead and the things that happened in the past. Absolutely. I was really impressed by the two and three-year-olds who were rigged up up on the mountain with their parents. It's, it's again, it was a wonderful start to the dawn. Starting with a karakia by two young women in a traditional Māori sense, just honouring our gods and the families and the people have come before us. It's a very spiritual moment, as well as combining that with the talk that you gave on from space place around the scientific knowledge related to the stars. And we, we also had telescopes there, and we also had the Wellington Astronomical Society. Everybody braved the cold this morning. Unfortunately, we didn't get to see Matariki because of the clouds that hang over Wellington habitually but we did get to see Saturn and a little bit of Jupiter so it was a great morning to get out nice and early it was cold up on the mountain but it was really cool yeah I, I didn't mind the clouds mm. at all I actually felt that it enabled us to hold together and to really focus on 
why we're there and what we're learning. So it was, it was still well worth it, if not a bit chilly. Yes, I was kind of hoping the crowds weren't there after lugging the telescope up about 400 steps. But <laughs> Yeah, well, we did stay quite a lot. We, we stayed kind of like two hours. Speaking of which, what, what time is the sun going to rise in the month of July? Well, it'll start off at the beginning of the month at 7.50 in the morning, and by the end of the month it'll be 7.30. So the days are getting longer. Yay, or nay. <laughs> we like to well, look at the stars. Well, nay for astronomers, yay for people hanging out for summer. Beginning of the month we see around 5pm and towards the end at 5.20pm. The beautiful and long nights continue to enthrall us in July, which is fantastic. I think it's one of the best months for observing uh, that we have. Basically because as soon as you knock off work, you can get your telescope out, go outside. That's the perks of living here in Wellington. Mm. This month, the Milky Way is the best, and we look again straight to the galactic center. In terms of stargazing, that's the time when we can see the center of our galaxy all night long. Starting from the evening when it's rising in the southeast, the core of the Milky Way reaches meridian around 10 p.m., which is not too bad because you're still early enough to, to go to bed as well for those people who are normal uh, timekeepers. And then the Milky Way center sets in the west just before sunrise. So you have the Milky Way center all night long. With the center of the galaxy come more stars as we're looking towards the rotational center of the Milky Way in the direction of Sagittarius, Ophiuchus and Scorpius. It's spectacular to think that we twenty about 26,500 light years away from the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is a very strong radio source called um, Sagittarius A-star, which is 4 million times more massive than our sun, so it's quite a monster. Sagittarius A-star is not visible to the naked eye, and we, what we know about it comes from observations in gamma rays, X-rays, infrared, and other radio wavelengths as well. In fact, most of the center of the galaxy's line of sight is covered in dust, which is visible in the form of dark bands. They show up in uh, wide-field photographs of the Milky Way. The dust makes interesting shapes against the light that comes from the stars in the disk of the Milky Way. And people around the world and throughout times imagine many creatures that inhabit our galaxy. A great example is the emu that our neighbors, the Aboriginal Australians, placed across the Milky Way. That is as big as the galaxy. Another example of dark creatures in the sky, but on a smaller scale, is the famous Prancing Horse Nebula, which observed from the Northern Hemisphere does look like a prancing horse. It also looks like a pipe or a donkey, and of course taking a huge leap all the way to the southern hemisphere, where everything in the sky looks upside down to what we see in the northern hemisphere, we have a kiwi checking out the centre of the galaxy. Kiwis are nocturnal birds, endemic to New Zealand. They feed on insects in the forest and they are an endangered species. The closest relative of the kiwi is uh, another ratite in Madagascar called the elephant bird. Warm-blooded mammals such as cats, dogs, possums, rats, all introduced into New Zealand, are the main predators of the bird. They eat their eggs and stuff, so they've suffered a lot of losses. And humans are the biggest problem for Kiwis, but we're doing what we can to try and preserve the population in our different interest groups and councils and um, the Department of Conservation are doing what they can to keep Kiwi numbers up so we can have them wandering around the forest doing what they do best. The kiwi bird, of course, is one of our symbols for New Zealand. 
and is uh, the most loved bird here. And how amazing is that it's embedded in the night sky? This bird can only be seen active at night, and how fitting that there's a kiwi bird at the centre of our galaxy. It's a matter of perspective, of course, and, and a coincidence, a great coincidence, as you have to know what a kiwi bird is, first of all, and then to see it in the night sky. And this led to the realisation that if you turn a horse upside down, you get a kiwi bird. And of course, Milky Way Kiwi is useful for explaining where Sagittarius A star is because it's um, pretty much on the top of Milky Way Kiwi's head, right there in the centre of the galaxy. There are other birds in the sky in July. Birds in the sky this month are obviously the Milky Way Kiwi that is the king, but also some proper constellations such as Corvus, Cygnus the Swan, also known as the Northern Cross, is in the sky around midnight. Another northern flying bird is Aquila, the eagle, that is rising just after 8pm. On the southern horizon is the dove, Columba, in between the dog star Sirius and the cat star Canopus, of course. Delicate and rich in optical double stars, I love this one, that we can see with the naked eye, Grus, the crane, is another bird constellation laying low on the southern eastern horizon. And as much as I don't like them, Musca the fly also qualifies for a flying constellation. Near the Southern Cross, Musca looks like a small polygon. Near Musca, Apus, the bird of paradise, his name literally means no feet in Greek, as it was once wrongly believed that the bird of paradise lack feet. Apus is pointing straight at Pavo, the peacock, flaunting his feathers all over the South Celestial Circle. Next to Pavo is to Tanav, near the small Magellanic Cloud. It's neighbouring Grus on one side, and on the other one is Phoenix. Since Herodotus, the Greek historian, the bird of Phoenix was associated with the sun. The Phoenix obtains new life by rising from the ashes of its predecessor, and it can live for 1400 years at a time. And there is also a flying fish, Volans. Its tail is pointing at the large Magellanic Cloud, and its head is halfway through between Mia Placidus and Avior in Carina. And last but not least, I don't know for sure if unicorns can fly, or if they even exist at all, but I'm mentioning it here just in case. The elusive Monoceros, the unicorn. It is between Sirius and Orion, and its stars are so faint that I've always just barely made out the shape of it. Monoceros is visible in the morning sky. It certainly doesn't actually look like a unicorn, but anyway. Bright stars in the Milky Way, starting from the west and looking south after sunset is Sirius, very low on the horizon, and then Canopus, which is not really in the Milky Way, but is not far from it either, and then following the Milky Way to the south are Suhal al Mulif and Avior in Vela. High in the sky is the Southern Cross, which around mid-July and after sunset is at its highest position in, on the circumpolar zone. Alpha and Beta Centauri are to the left of the Southern Cross, and on the southeastern horizon, close to the centre of the Milky Way, are Antares and Shola in Scorpius, Nunki in Sagittarius, and last but not least, after 10pm, Altair and Vega are just grazing the northern horizon. So also grazing the northern sky, but from New Zealand you'd have to be on a tall mountain with the ocean as your horizon, unless you're way up by Auckland you might see it, is the bottom of the plough just visible? The star, the lowest star, just grazes the horizon. Um, but we won't see it from Wellington because we've got too many hills and clouds. And of course Sirius is in the morning sky as well. 
when it rises before the sun and we actually use Sirius to find the star cluster Pleiades. We can actually count two, three in Maori if we look at the morning sky. Absolutely. We look for Ajitahi, the main star, then Takerua and then Totoru. And that's how we actually find Matariki. And we made a video just before, mm -hmm. so keep an eye on our website. Orion is both on the western horizon at sunset. The three stars of his belt are plunging vertically into the ocean. Rigel is to the left and Betelgeuse is to the right and they touch down almost at the same time. And then the last star from Orion is Saif, the last to sink into the ocean. Then in the morning sky, Orion will rise around 6am with Rigel first, which here is known as Puanga or Puaka. Then the belt will come up and the last to appear will be Betelgeuse. The heliacal rising of Puanga is the alternative to observing the Māori New Year as due to the mountain ridge due to the east of the Taranaki region and the Pleiades are too low in the sky. Bright stars on the ecliptic, nothing changed from last month. The same bright stars are on the ecliptic. Regulus from Leo, which is extremely close to the ecliptic. Then Spica, the blue giant in Virgo. Zubanel Genubi, my favorite star name. Another star grazing the ecliptic and Zubanel Shamali just beneath it. Zubanel Genubi means the northern claw and Zubanel Shamali means the southern claw, alluding to these two stars that have been the claws of Scorpius before they were chopped off and turned into the current constellation of Libra. These stars are followed by Antares in Scorpius, which is both on the ecliptic and in the Milky Way. And this is roughly where the planes of the two intersect. The notable deep sky objects, and these are around Virgo, and they're in a great position to see at the moment. M49, M58, M59, M60, M87, the Sombrero Galaxy, M104, and the Eyes Galaxies, the Siamese Twins. And if you're really keen and you want to look at something a long way away, the Quasar 3C273. Virgo has 11 Messier objects, so you are in for a treat with this constellation. You can get a map and look for all these objects, or if everything else fails, simply take your binoculars and swipe the Milky Way from one edge to the other. You might not figure out exactly which objects you're looking at, but you would definitely find amazing sights. Not too many planets in the sky in July, but Jupiter is there, and Jupiter is beautiful, and also Saturn is there, and they're a regal to watch, they're flanking the Milky Way each side, and they will be in the sky for a very long time, almost all night long. This is, in a nutshell, the beautiful sky from here, from Wellington, and we're really lucky to be here, because for me, July is the best month to look at the stars, we can see the Milky Way Kiwi, and also we have all these events that are happening. We have fireworks, we have a new year starting. So from here from Wellington, Haritina Mogoshanu, Kelly Paul, Sam Liski. We wish you Namihi Otesauho. I Namihi And we hope for a very prosperous year ahead. Thank you. And clear skies. Thanks for that, Haritina and Sam. And we would normally be going on to the feedback, but we don't have any feedback in our show notes this month. 
This could be because we didn't get any feedback, in which case we would all be very sad, or because just about everybody else working on the Jodcast is so busy right now that they didn't have a chance to look at the feedback. In any case, please do send us feedback. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. Or YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. So thanks to Jess Wade for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Michael Wright, Lizzie Lee, and Benjamin Shaw. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time, Joe on. on.